if you are visiting with us this morning. Thanks for taking time on your Sunday morning to make us a part of what's happening. If you're watching online or if you're in the future on a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday and listening to us, thanks for uh, taking a moment out of your week to listen to week uh, number three of our series called What Are You Doing? And uh, I wanted to tell you a, a quick story. My, my wife and I are in the final stages of uh, adopting uh, a girl through uh, making, trying to add to our family, and uh, she has learned that one of my favorite things to do is to hide someone in the house and scare her. <laughs> and if that isn't an indicator of just who I am kind of as a person, that is an indicator of who I am uh, just as a person in general. And so, uh, how many parents just in the room would like to admit that they also maybe enjoy hiding or enjoyed hiding and scaring their children? You are my people. Well done. Yes. Okay. Great. Uh, just this past week, uh, they got home from an event, and uh, in our house, there's a, a long hallway that kind of has all of the main bedrooms in our house, and there's a little tiny closet. And so, um, that just right before we get to her room and then the, the bathroom that she uses, and she's now used to when she comes in and she can't find me, she now says, like, oh, no, I know he's hiding somewhere, right? And so now, like, the game is on. And so uh, she got close to her room and her bathroom, and she said out loud, I know he's hiding somewhere, and it's either in my bathroom or my bedroom, but I was actually hiding in the little closet right before both of those. Uh, and so as she was looking, she was waiting for me to come out from one of the other two doors, and right when she got to that door, just, wow, right? You know, just, just the joy of the Lord. You know, it's just, uh, it's a beautiful thing. But I love and hate for her that she now has conditioned herself to know he's not in the living room. Oh, no. I, now I need to be on high alert because something's happening, right? Uh, many years ago and long ago, scientists and people who study the way that humans interact, they have discovered that humans respond to things based on either a bias that you have, experiences that you have, emotions that are available to you, and maybe even some of the preferences that you have, right? There's a food lab uh, that happens uh, year-round on several college campuses and that study the way that people interact with just food. And uh, in the late 80s and early 90s, they did a five-year study about how people interact with food in social settings. And one of the ways that they did this study was they paid for 500 people, couples, married couples and families, uh, to go out to the very fanciest dinner they could have in their cities. And then they also paid for them to go to a movie afterwards. And so they made sure that they were served uh, both an appetizer, a dinner, and a dessert. And then when they got to the movie, they gave them, they gave them vouchers for both the movie and for popcorn. And they wanted to see how many of the families would actually eat popcorn, even though they had just had an appetizer, a meal, and a dessert. And it was over 80% of the families, just by the smell of the popcorn, listed off that they were going to eat a large container of popcorn, even though 30 minutes prior they had just had a full meal. Raise your hand in the room if you would have been in that 80% of people that when you walked into the theater and the smell of popcorn hits, you're like, well, I mean, I, I'm here, right? I could go for some popcorn, right? Like, 
why did you eat that? You just said, well, I'm, it's, it, we're at the movies, right? And if it was free, I'm, I'm not going to pay the $73 for the tub of popcorn, but if it was free, I'm going to eat the popcorn, right? We know that based on where you're at, physical spaces, emotions, and biases that you have, and preferences that you have, you're going to respond behaviorally to them. I mean, you can even just by seeing an image have a response, both good and bad. You it's, it's neither good nor bad. It's just an image that you might have a vomit, a visceral response to. It's up to you. It's based on your bias and your emotions and your preference. And I don't, I'm not here either way to judge either of those things. Or maybe you can actually just go ahead and take that down now. There we go. Okay. We can continue with godly interactions now. Um, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Right? And then even there's things that we experience because of how we engage with culture, that we remember things and we have behavioral responses to just because of things that we experience, right? Like if I were to go, Red Robin, you didn't have to even think about that, right? Like you knew immediately what that response was going to be because of that phrase. And people who do research have discovered that purchases made by people who are influencers, or people who are representative of brands and people who have purchased things because of those people that are recognized with those brand names and those people in the past 10 years have increased by about 34% because of those purchases made because of who those brands are associated with. Not because they're a better product or a superior thing, but because of who those products are associated with. And so there's this idea that the things that we do are sometimes just connected to the responses that we have based on the way we see things, how we process things, our preferences, our biases that we have, our experiences that we have, almost as if they're running on a different kind of engine than what we actually think is running them. In fact, we have parts of our lives, if you would allow me to maybe just make some more wild conjecture this morning, I would venture a guess that we, myself included, that we have parts of our lives that run on engines that we don't even know exist and that we don't even know are running. That there are areas of our lives that just go and just run and just fire and they just work and we don't even know that they're doing that. We don't even know that they're happening, that they even exist, or that they're even making decisions, that they're even happening. And what if I told you that maybe a few of those engines are running some very important areas of your life, maybe without you even knowing about it. So this morning as we go into week number three of what are you doing, if you would, turn to the book of Romans, chapter 12, as we look at uh, what I think is a pretty uh, key and critical area of our life and a part of following after Jesus uh, that I think is critical to this idea of why we do what we do when we ask, what are you doing? Now, if you don't have a Bible and you're visiting with us, there's one that's probably underneath a chair that's around you or you can sneak a peek off your neighbor. You can go to our public Wi-Fi and you can just download the Bible app on your phone. And you can, uh, you can look it up off of there. So Romans chapter 7, we'll start in verse 14. But before we get to this episode this week, let me just give you a, what, what's going on here. Paul, who is the writer of the book of Romans, 
has had his life turned upside down by Jesus in a crazy experience. And now he's writing letters to a group of believers in the city of Rome. And those people that he's writing to have a very similar religious background to the one that he does. He's writing to a group of people that when he says something and he uses maybe an insider term or a term that only a few people would know, everyone he's writing to is going to know what those things mean. And so when he writes, if you were just going to sit down and try to read the book of Romans, you might get like two or three chapters in and just go, what am I reading right now? Because he's assuming that some of this language that he's going to use, they'll already know, and they did know when he was writing it. And so if you would allow me just uh, a second here to, to come up with and to explain to you in the most basic terms two things we're going to talk about just for you to understand that when he wrote them, they completely understood, and there was not a foreign concept to them when he's talking about So there's two things that I want to just lay the foundation with this morning. And if you've been in church for any time, you might know these already, but uh, we could do five weeks of study just on these two things alone, but we're not going to do that, and I don't want you to have to take that long of a nap this morning either. Uh, so I'm just going to give you a big overview. You're going to put the next one up here. The two words that I want for you to think about, well, the first one is the law. Right? So he's going to talk about the law, and he does a lot in the book of Romans. If you fancy yourself a read over the book of Romans over the next week, he talks about the law. And what he means is the way of life set by God's holiness. Now, for those people, it would have been like the first five books of the Bible. But really what he's talking about is this way of living a life that is representative of the holiness of God and how people live their life so that their life reflects God's holiness. You might have grown up in church and heard the word perfection, God's perfection, but really what they're talking about is God's holiness. It's a way of living that matches his holiness. And then the second word that I want for you to think of or he's going to talk about is sin. And if you've been in church any amount of time, you've definitely heard this word. If you've been in the wrong kind of church, you've heard this word uh, probably a lot and only this word a lot and never anything on the other side of this. But we believe in the Bible, so we talk about sin just as much as we talk about love and grace as well. But he talks about sin here, and here's what he means by sin. And this is the big picture thing. Uh, this is anything that is defiant or opposite of or in opposition of God's holiness. The holiness of God that that law was set in place for. Anything that is opposite of that that is defiant of that, or anything that misses the standard of that holiness is what he's talking about when he says sin. Again, we could spend weeks, weeks talking about just those two words, but that's the 10,000-foot view of what he's talking about. So let's read Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 14. It says this, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh. Sold as a slave to sin. For I do not understand what I am doing because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. We'll pause for a second. This word he uses here for flesh is this, uh, this New Testament Greek word, which is sarks. And it means human nature. It's like the very nature that we have as human beings. It, it, it really highlights our impulsive nature that we have as humans. This desire for us to seek after ourselves. 
and to want to serve only us and our desires and our intentions and our good. And what he's saying here is, I want to, the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, meaning me, right? Like, I want to go after what I want, seeking my nature and what's best for me. And what he says in verse 16 He's comparing the two. He says, God's holiness and God's way of living is compared to the way that I want to do things and my human nature. And he says in verse 16, he says, if I do what I do not want to do, meaning the things I know God wants me to do, but I don't do them, now I can truly see that the law is good. He's saying that God's way of holiness is validated by all the bad things that he experiences when he does it the way that he wants to do it. The law is good and is validated whenever I do what I want to do because of the experiences that I have. I can compare the two and I realize, no, the law is good. God's way of doing things, his holiness is good because all the things that I happen to get when I do what I want to do in the long term. Let's keep reading in verse 17. So it says, it says this, he says, so now I am no longer the one doing it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my flesh. There's nothing good in my desires and what I want for myself and my human nature. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. There's no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. I'm going to pause for a second. Do you ever read the Bible and just go, what? Raise your hand. How many of you have read the Bible and you're like, I just, I feel, I don't, my, my brain is coming through my eyes right now. I don't understand what I've just read before. Reread that passage. 17 through 19. So now I am no longer the one doing it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me, my flesh, for the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. What? I, I'm, I need some kind of whiteboard illustration, Paul, because I don't understand what you're talking about. There's, this is very confusing. And it, we get here in the times that Paul is writing, we get almost this like dear diary entry in the middle of his writing. Almost like a journal entry to when he's talking about it. Because in the passage from 13 to verse 22, 23, 24, we have almost over 30 times where Paul says, I, me, mine. And we have a very specific, a very pointed time where Paul is telling his writers or the people, his audience, for him as a writer, this is about me. And my struggle and the thing that I'm working through and the thing that I am working on, right? We get this, maybe this inner monologue where he's talking to himself, but he's also writing and kind of journaling as to what's going on. And listen, verse 19 is so relatable for me as a person and a follower of Jesus. I don't do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. And I think it's relatable for pretty much everyone in the room. And those of you that are watching online or listening a little bit later on in the week, 
And here's the problem. And if your toes get stepped on a little bit, it's okay. But we've made church something where admitting that seems not okay. And a place where we all get together, we should the first thing we should be able to recognize and come together on is that we're all here in verse 19. Right? No matter what kind of clothes we put on, no matter what kind of show we put up, no matter what kind of front we present to people, this is the struggle and the challenge of following after Jesus every day. The things that I don't want to do, I always seem to find myself doing, and I don't want to do them. But I always seem to, right? And at the peak moments of me doing this in my life, and maybe the same for you, at the peak moments when you've got all these things stacked up and you're like, what? This, I'm doing this, and I don't want to do this, and I, I hate that I'm doing this. Why am I doing this? And I, I know I should be doing this, but, but I'm doing this. And the peak moments of those things in my life and probably for yours, it always brings me to one question that I ask. You know what that question is? What are you doing? When I get alone with myself, when I don't want to be thinking about it, when I'm trying to go to sleep, or when I'm driving in the car, or I have those few moments with myself, it seems like there's always a thought when I'm going, this and this and this. And it's like, what are you doing? I know I shouldn't be doing this. I shouldn't have this attitude. I shouldn't view things this way. I know that, I know that God wants me to view this relationship this way. And God wants me to see the world in this way, but I don't see it this way. Jeremy, what are you doing? What are you doing? Now, if I can be honest with you, this passage is what has inspired these, this series. Because this is the honesty and this is the moment that I hope that we as a church can operate in forever. This moment of transparency and honesty, what am I doing? I don't have it all figured out. You see, the, this founding point of life, of life wisdom and following Jesus is knowing that we are drawn back to the flesh. Our human nature. That's where we are as, as people. As long as we're walking this earth and we wear these skin and bones... We are going to be drawn back to the flesh, our own desires, our own intention, our own human nature. And there's always going to be this moment of I want to do this, but I'm doing this. I don't want to do this, but I'm doing this. And this constant battle that happens. And this is like understanding that is the beginning of life wisdom and how we follow Jesus and knowing that we are always going to be, by default, drawn back to those things. Because here's, here's the truth. We have a temptation as people to go back to the old thing because we think that there's something there that's worth it. And there's not. We have a temptation as people to go back to the old things the things that we did before, because we think that there's something there. If I go back to this, oh, there was something there. But there's not. And this is, what, this, is what we're, this is where we are. This is our human nature. This is the battle. This is the back and forth that Paul is talking about in this passage. 
This is the what are you doing key idea here is that I used to do this, and I don't want to do this, but I'm still doing this. And at the very base, it's because I, there's, oh, there might be something there that I don't have. Let me go back to it. But there's not. Right? And that is the challenge, the strength of sin. That's the draw of sin. That is the nature of sin in our flesh is that it promises something and it never delivers the way that it promised. And that's the goodness of God is that whatever he promises, he always delivers it. I'll say that again. And that's the goodness of God is that whatever he promises on, he always delivers on. I want this over here. It's never going to be enough. It promises something, but it's never going to deliver. God's like, here's this thing. Just do this. I promise you, and I'm always going to deliver on it. And this battle that Paul is talking about, that he references here, he keeps talking about it in verse 20. He says this, now, if I do what I do not want, I am no longer the one that does it, but it is the sin that lives in me. So I discover this law. When I want to do what is good, Evil is present with me, for in my inner self, I delight in God's law, but I say a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. He literally says here, when I want to do something I know I'm supposed to do, evil is present with me because it's my flesh. And there's this literal battle I'm going to fight when I, when I know I'm supposed to do this, but there's this thing that I'm not supposed to do that's tempting me to do this. There's this moment of fighting that happens inside of me. And some of you, we all know what that conflict looks like. In fact, some of you could very specifically name what that conflict looks like, Right? If I could just suggest to you, any conflict that exists in how you want to do things because of your faith and your beliefs in Jesus and the holiness you know God has called you to, anything that conflicts with that and how you want to do that compared to what you're doing means that something needs taken care of. That there's something that exists that needs to be taken care of in that moment for you to be able to do what it is that you want to do instead of doing what you don't want to do. It's like if you, it's like if you, went, into, uh, if you went into a hospital and you had debris in a wound and a doctor would look at me like, oh, good enough. Close it up. No. There's something that would need to be removed because there's something that exists where it doesn't need to exist. So they would remove that. They would take that thing away. And anytime you're in this moment, like, I know what I want to do, but I have this urge not to do it. There's something that conflicts that needs to be removed or at least examined and looked at so that you can live this life that honors God, that represents his holiness and the life that he has for you. So if you have an addiction it means that there's still a hurt that probably needs healed. And when you want to run back to that addiction, in that moment it might need to be 
examine what is it that hurts right now that's causing me to want to reach back for that. And if you're holding on to your grudge, it probably means that forgiveness is still needed to be offered to someone. And if you're feeling like a failure, it means that grace probably still needs to be given. Let me say that one again. If you're feeling like a failure, it means that grace probably needs to be given and extended. Because this, I know what I'm supposed to do, but I didn't do it. And I didn't do what I know I'm supposed to do. I just can't seem to figure this out. Why am I such a failure? Why am I such a screw-up? And then over the top, you're a failure, you're a screw-up. And the enemy just wants to keep you defeated. You're a failure, you're a screw-up. And by the way, Jesus is like, hey, forgiveness is available. <laughs> Jesus was never like, hey, you have to be perfect. <laughs> he didn't say that. When you feel like a failure and you get into this identity of I'm just this failure, right? Feeling like a failure means grace still needs to be given, maybe to yourself. Or maybe for you to just understand that grace and forgiveness are available to you. Uh, the one person who could hold a grudge doesn't. It doesn't want to. Exhaustion means rest probably needs to be taken. Resentment probably means that restoration is still missing. And no matter where you're at with this this morning, can I just encourage you that any moment that leads you, that leads us to ask ourselves, what are you doing? Also, might be a moment for us to ask, what have I not given to God that still has me right here? What are you doing? Why am I doing the same thing over and over and over again? And maybe the question that needs to be asked is, what have I not given to God that still has me here in this spot? And I don't know what that might be for you. But I bet it's something. I bet as we're talking about what it feels like to feel like I'm always here in this constant war and waging of my soul and this battle back and forth of this that Paul reads and talks about, I'm curious what it is that comes to your mind. I would venture it's not a blank. I would venture it's something. A relationship with someone. So my question for you this morning is, what is it that you have not given to God that might be keeping you where you are and holding you back from where it is that you need to be? Where God is calling you to be, where God is trying to free you up to be? I mean, the idea that Paul starts off with in the part of this passage where he says, but I have been sold as a slave to sin that sometimes we keep ourselves there because we just don't want to let go of the chains that hold us. And if you're wondering, how do I even get out of this cycle? 
How do I get out of this addiction that I'm in? How do I let go of this grudge? How do I stop feeling like a failure? How do I finally find some kind of rest because I'm just exhausted? How do I get rid of this resentment and get some restoration that's happened? I just, how do I find that? Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says if therefore there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because he has set you free from the law of sin and death And it is in all those moments, in the back and forth, when we need to get out of those, when we find ourselves in those moments, it is in the person and the words and the works of Jesus that we find freedom, we find hope, we find peace, we find restoration, we find everything that we're looking for because everything that Jesus promises, he delivers. this morning as we come together as a church to respond, may we be reminded of his goodness, of his forgiveness, his grace, and his mercy as represented in communion, that the wafer represents his body that was broken, that his blood was shed for us. May we be reminded of his generosity as we are generous by giving of our tithes and offerings in the giving boxes. As we respond as a church through prayer, Maybe this morning, maybe this morning the business you need to handle is just, I've got this thing that I'm back and forth on, and I'm tired of being back and forth on it. And maybe the work for you this morning as you spend some time in prayers, you just want to come up here to the altar and just say, God, I'm tired of holding on to it. I just want to give it to you. Whatever that is. The altars are up here for you to come and spend some time in prayer. If you want to pray with someone that's in the room, you can do that. And then may we collectively as a church family come together to worship, to be reminded that we have a God who provides everything we could ever be looking for, everything we could ever be searching for, everything we could ever want is found in him. And that's one of so many reasons why we have to worship him. Let's pray together before we respond. So God, as we're trying to figure out what it is that we're doing, we're thankful that we can flip through the pages of scripture and be able to know with confidence what it is that you're doing. That you're a God who is near to us, that extends grace and forgiveness to each one of us. midst of our struggles and our wavering and our doubts and our questions that you are you are our strong tower our stronghold, our anchor that you are our rock so I pray this morning that whatever it is that anyone in the room might might be going back and forth on that they would take these next few moments to just say I'm, I just want to give these up know what it is that I'm supposed to be doing. I'm tired of looking back and trying to figure out these other things and I'm just going to give them up.
God, I think that you are a God who listens to us and we pray. We pray for boldness. We pray for a spirit of humility and knowing that we might be able to seek after you. And is the cross just another sign that you, you sought out after us? We give these next few moments as an act of worship because you're the only one worthy of our praise. It's in the strong name of Jesus that I pray.